Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. I would now like to invite Ron G. to come up and begin the uh, introduction of the, of the speakers for this evening. My name is Ron, and I am a recovering sexaholic. We're going to be beginning uh, our speaker meeting for the portion of our meeting. Hearing stories of recovery from each fellowship helps us understand the disease of sexaholism and how it has effects on others. Each of our speakers is sharing their own story from their own perspective and do not represent SA or SNON as a whole. Sometimes it's difficult to hear some of the stories we share, especially for newcomers. If you feel a need to speak with someone after the meeting, just look for someone with a red Ask Me button on them. A common misperception held by some people in SA is that SA is for men and SNON is for women. Nothing can be further from the truth. The disease of sexaholism does not discriminate based on race, religion, financial status, or gender. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. The only requirement for membership in Essanon is there is a problem of sexaholism in a relative or friend. It's my pleasure to introduce our essay speaker tonight. He's uh, a man I consider a close friend, and he's an example for others in the program. Uh, we hear about sponsors and grand sponsors and great grand sponsors, and um, we share the same sponsor, so that makes him my brother. And uh, my brother has been in recovery since 1994 and inspires us by taking actions of recovery and working the steps and being of service. His home group is in your Belinda. It's not on, the, on here, but he's an accomplished musician, too. Uh, please join me in welcoming Rob S. Can everybody hear me? Good. Before I get started, I'd like to... Um, oh, thank you very much. Before I get started, I'd like to acknowledge all the other speakers who have come before me this weekend and uh, have shared of their experience, strength, and hope. Um, I know that it takes a lot of guts to get up here and to pour your heart out. And... Um, it was an inspiration to me 
to hear you speak, and uh, I only hope that I can um, follow in your footsteps. So thank you. Well, let's get started. My name is Rob, and I am a sexaholic, and I'm a gratefully recovering sexaholic. Uh, Thank you. I've been in recovery for 23 years this month, Um, and I've kind of uh, broken my talk into several little chapters, so bear with me a little bit. I've got it all nicely typed out, but I'm much better shooting from the hip, so I'm going to try and do a little bit of both, okay? Okay. in the beginning, I grew up in, I was born in New York, and I have been an obsessive compulsive in one form or another for my entire life. I was born into a family of dysfunction. My mother has been a lifelong uh, recovering alcoholic, and my father has been a professed recovering alcoholic. I come from a family of addicts and addiction. Uh, as a child, I was terribly shy, socially awkward, and the poster child of an introvert. I found it much easier to get along by myself than having to interact with others. I had few childhood friends and mostly kept to myself. I learned relatively early that isolation was where I was most comfortable. I was a loner and I was comfortable as such. I I was most comfortable doing things that were creative, like uh, artwork or music. In fact, I had graduated with a degree in art, and as was mentioned, I'm a semi-pro bass player, so uh, that's... uh, always been one of my strengths, but it's also been kind of uh, an area that I want to talk about a little bit as I go through my um, talk tonight. I was When I'm in those areas, I'm kind of in my zone. Uh, my transition from childhood to uh, being an adult, um, we moved across country. My dad took us from, Californ- from New York to California when he was unemployed from the job that he'd been working at for quite some time. Um, that was a real difficult thing for me um, because we didn't do it in the summertime when most people tend to go across country. I might as well have been from Russia when I got here to California. I was from New York and I talked like it too. And um, so before Thanksgiving of, 2000, of 1972, I was a New Yorker. And then by the time I got to California and after Thanksgiving, well, I was a California. So hang, you know, hang ten, dude. <laughs> Um, young teens are brutal with each other, especially if you don't conform. And the transition from New York to California was really difficult for the entire family. I spent many days pleading with my parents to just move us back to New York. And when I realized we were going to be in California for the better or for worse, I begged my mom, please get me different clothes. <laughs> I mean, you could spot me from a mile away. <clears throat> I was terminally shy. I found that solitude was a way for me to have peace of mind. I did lots of things alone in my zone. I loved music, and I started playing bass guitar to records that I had when I would get home from school. And I had a desire to be more social at school, and I had crushes on girls that I found attractive in junior high. But I didn't have the confidence to get up and talk to them, so I spent a lot of time gawking. In my high school years and in my young adulthood, I hung out with the loners and the other socially inept kids in high school. We were like the misfit toys, if you know what I'm talking about. We were cut from similar cloth. I didn't have much of an adult direction or as an adolescent, although I was involved in a lot of faith traditions and I was involved in youth ministry and such, but I was bored and restless and I would get in, often get in trouble with the hoodlums of my uh, age bracket. And... Um, 
It was in the boredom, the anxiety that kind of led me to discover masturbation. And uh, so I'll talk a little bit about uh, my introduction to that. The first time I stumbled into acting out, it was quite by accident. I found the sensation incredible, but I was never told about what masturbation was. Um, I was intrigued and elated by the sensation, but the outcome was a total surprise to me. I actually thought I broke something. So this was the beginning of a devastating journey that I had absolutely no idea would lead to an addiction that would wreak havoc on me in years to come. I ritualized acting out. And what I mean by that was I would get up in the morning and I'd go to school and in the afternoon I would come home and I, in order to relax I would act out. And then I'd do my homework and I'd have dinner and I had my chores and things I had to do and then I'd do some more homework and then I'd act out and I'd retire and I'd go to bed. And that was my ritual for the time that I was in probably most of high school and uh, into into college. Um, the ritual sustained me for the last few years in high school and into college, and I didn't even make the connection that this sensation was even sexual in nature because in my household, that word S-E-X was never even mentioned. The first, this, At first, the simple mechanics of acting out would permit me to achieve the end result. I didn't need to resort to anything other than that physical stimulation. As my ritual progressed, I made the connection that I was stimulated by visuals, so I resorted to my mother's clothing catalogs from department stores. I began to require something to fixate over in order to get the desired effect. And uh, this phase of the development of my addiction lasted for quite a few years as well. I dated little during high school. I had some short-lived relationships with girlfriends and after I was able to lose some of my debilitating shyness. Because of my addiction was triggered by certain kinds of gals, I went on a few dates with the sole purpose of satisfying my growing lust. I met my first wife in March of my senior year of high school. She was attracted to me, and we had a mutual friend who introduced us. Although I was attracted to this gal, I needed to resort to my masturbation ritual. I had no idea that my little secret pastime was to be the undoing of me much later on. After the summer of our graduation from high school, we broke things off. She was going to another school, and we were getting too physical. And uh, I was a devout Catholic, and I still am a devout Catholic, and that just never really tended to jive with me. I told my parents we were having sex, and they forbid me from seeing her or having her come over to the house. And there's a little background there. My eldest sister had gone away to college, and... um, she experienced a similar phenomenon with a, a, a young man that inevitably she had a relationship, a sexual relationship with, and she became pregnant. And they had a young, uh, a little baby, and uh, they decided, well, getting married made the most sense. And um, the baby was born on my birthday, on November the 10th, and, um, and uh, it was a shotgun wedding, but it was... You know, everybody was delighted to have a brand new uh, nephew in the family. But two weeks after my nephew was uh, born, he died of SIDS. And that was painful. Anyway, so um, when my parents found out that um, I was uh, having sex, uh, well, uh, my girlfriend was banned and barred from the house. I couldn't see her, and I wasn't really even supposed to talk to her. So um, that was difficult, because I loved both my parents, and I loved this girl. But after some time, 
Apart from my girlfriend, we eventually got back together, and we would carpool to school. On the days we had class together, I was going to Cal State Fullerton with her. And she would do little um, considerate things for me, like make me lunch. She always paid for dates. I was a musician, so... (laughs) So I was delighted by that. Um, Anyway, I was serious about her, and I asked her to marry me in my junior year of college, and my... Parents finally relented, and they're ostracizing her when they saw how we were serious about getting married. I never really tried to refrain from having sex with her. I had heard of other people wanting to wait until they were married, and I just didn't understand that concept. I was a blossoming sex addict, and she just wanted to make me happy. So right out of college, we were married, and that in in and of itself was a shock to my system. We were in our early 20s, right out of college, both working full-time and married all within a three-month span after my graduation. My wife was still in school, and I was in a low-paying job as a graphic designer. Things should have been happy, but they really weren't that happy at all. I was an insistent, and, and yes, I was an assistant sex addict. I could never get enough, and the more I demanded that my wife have sex with me, the more she pulled away. And she was a smart gal. She was getting the very clear picture that I wasn't so much interested in closeness and intimacy. I only wanted what my lust was demanding from her. The stress of my full-time employment and my advertising job combined with the new pressures of being married drove me to look for opportunities to resort to my lust drug. I was very much attracted to my wife, and she was attractive. However, she never had a chance. Acting out was my taskmaster, and it wasn't until long afterward that I would get away when I could return to my ritual. We moved around a bit in the first few years of marriage, and I worked at several jobs. I took a job that I worked third shift on for about three years. This was another point where my addiction progressed. I was alone on third shift all night working at a job. I was getting some fairly good pay for, but highly unfulfilled at. I'd meditate in the evenings by making pay-for-sex telephone calls on the company phone, and if things were really slow, well, then I would go on field trips <clears throat> to some of the local bars to look at women. I could never hold on to a job for terribly long. I was a hard worker in the company of others, but when I was alone and unattended in the evening and there was little or no work on the shift, I would occupy myself in acting out on the company phone with strangers on the other end of the line. And this ritual took its toll on my employment at several of the jobs that I held. I was never told that I was being let go on account of the telephone abuse, so I never was able to really put one and one together until much later on. Um, I thought I was a good worker, more or less. While I was still working on third shift, my wife became pregnant with my first child. Guilt started to get the better of me. I was living on the other side of the day from my wife. She was pregnant, and I felt badly about acting out activities. I was doing at work, and when I was all alone and at home when she was at work. The fact that she couldn't have sex with me just fueled my lust-driven frustration, which only pushed us further and further apart. I tried to justify the sex phone call bills that I accumulated at home. My wife would come to me with a $300, $500, $700 phone bill and demand an explanation for the charges. I was caught, and I couldn't deny that I had made the calls. When my wife brought my son home from the hospital, we moved into our first house. I'd been very busy painting and fixing up the house for several weeks prior to moving into the house. I wanted so much for her to appreciate the home. During this time, I managed to keep lust at bay. I had no time for it. I was working at the office, taking a few hours for sleep, and then working on the house. I'll never forget that time. It was a time when I was intensely busy and I was tremendously tired, but I would come home um, from 
work after, or I would get up and I would work and work and work on the house, and my wife would bring my new baby boy over to the house, and I was exhausted, and I had a little couch there, and I would lay down on it, and he would fit between my, between my, my right here on my breast and my knees, and he'd fall asleep, and I'd fall asleep. And that, those were some of the happier times that I remember from his uh, being a, a baby. So, um, I, uh, anyway, so shortly after we settled into our first house, I returned to my acting out activities, which just led me to believe that busy was not well. While I scoured local newspaper classified ads one day for phone sex phone numbers, I happened to stumble across a pastor's church in my area who specialized in sex addiction. So I called him, and he agreed to meet with me. We met three times about an hour each, and at the end of the session, he was frank with me. He told me that he believed that I had a difficult time being honest in my in the role my problems created at home. And otherwise, he also told me that he thought I had an issue with sexual addiction. Well, I tried to make that sound pretty. Actually, he said, Rob, you know, you're a pretty nice guy, but you're really kind of full of shit. And um, I... So that was really what came out of his mouth, and I wasn't ready to hear that. But he was a funny kind of a man, because at the end of it, you know, he could really read me, and he knew that I was prideful, and he knew that I had an ego, and he knew that I was boastful, and he knew that I wasn't honest. And he said, he gave me this business card, but he never really handed it to me. He kind of goes, you know, um, there's this meeting that happens over here on Wednesday nights over, you know, in Anaheim, and, uh, well, you know, you might be benefit if you thought about going to that um, you probably don't want to do that. But, you know, there's a bunch of guys, and they all get together, and it's a really good opportunity for you. And, and you know, I've got this card here. Hey, you probably don't want to do that. Um, I said, give me the card. <laughs> but he was right. I didn't want to do it. <clears throat> so for the next three months, I still continued to act out because I was terrified about admitting to myself what it really was that I was suffering from. And uh, so finally, after about three months of continuing down that desperate road, I decided to go to this meeting, and I was terrified to go to my first meeting. I didn't know what I thought about a room filled with sex addicts. I thought there would be a bunch of guys wearing trench coats or something. (laughs) Luckily, I was welcomed into the newcomer meeting in a different room and then allowed to join the others in the main room. So years in the program and not that many years in recovery. I spent the next 15 or so years attending meetings with varying levels of recovery. I had half a dozen sponsors who worked with me until I thought I was through with them, or they moved on, or one thing or another. And I owe an amends to at least a couple of them here, and I know one that I need to make a personal amends to, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> um, I could collect a few months of sobriety and then toss it all away because I wasn't really working my program. At one point, I had a year plus of recovery and made a decision one day to just throw it all away. I mean, it happened in like a nanosecond. I... You know, it was like, recovery, 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 lust, there it is, boom. And I didn't know what hit me. So anyway, at one point I had a year, oh, I'm sorry that I said that already. I, I convinced myself that I was one of the unfortunate ones described in Chapter 5 of the Big Book. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. That was me, Mr. Constitutionally Incapable. The problem with that was that I failed to read just a few more lines or a few more sentences down, and it said many of them do recover, however, if they have the capacity to be honest. Um, I guess I just kind of skipped over that for a few years. Anyway, so I didn't have that then. 
I fell away from the program for about a year when my wife decided that she wanted to go back to school to get her degree, which at that point was fine with me. I wasn't able to stay sober anyway. And aside from that, it would keep me from having to drag my rear end to meetings that admit that I only had a few days of sobriety. And in those days, in order to save face, I'd go to a meeting only if I had a week's worth of sobriety. Otherwise, I wouldn't go. And the problem with that was it became easier and easier to not have a week or even a few days of sobriety and then not go at all. So things went from bad to worse. I started to engage regularly in old patterns of behavior, and the Internet had emerged around that time and created new avenues for exploration without having to pay for my lust. I became more isolated with myself, no time spent with my wife or kids. I was too busy at work or acting out. I was surrounded by a loving family, yet all alone. The kids grew up with an absentee father. It's funny, my wife used to say to me, I am a single parent. That was her mantra, and it was true. So I was either working miles and miles away from the house, or I was miles and miles away from them emotionally within the confines of my house. At work, I would act out in my office on the computer. I was able to lock the door and spend hours on the Internet. I would be in that same zone that I mentioned a little bit earlier that I alluded to from my childhood. Somewhere about the middle of the afternoon, I'd come out of my lust binge and look at the clock and realize that I hadn't done any work that day. And then I'd panic, and I'd try to make up for this stolen time by working late into the evening. And by the time I'd get home from work, my wife and kids were already done with dinner, and they were ready for bed, and I'd eat alone. And the entire cycle of my day was out of kilter, and in so doing, only perpetuated my isolation from my family. And I wanted to bring up a couple of God moments that I wanted to share with you guys. Now, a God moment for me amounts to a time when my higher power poked me in the side, or maybe in the eyeball, because he was trying to get my attention. And I have two things I wanted to talk about and share with you about right now. And the first was that on one occasion, I was in my home office cruising through my normal lust-fueled spots that would frequent and happened to notice that my 13-year-old was shadowing me in the area that I would visit on the Internet. And I was stopped cold in my tracks. I was shocked that he would know that I was there, or how could he have found me there? I mean, I didn't give him enough credit. He was a real smart kid. So I was angry. I was angered that he'd spy on me at first, and, and then that would give way to the fear that my secret life might be discovered. And then I shot off my machine right away. And I wondered how long he'd been observing my behavior. And then, after some considerable thought, I became guilt-riddled that I might be modeling the kind of behavior for my son. Things went from bad to worse with my wife. We began to isolate from each other. She would watch TV in the evening, and I'd isolate in my office or just go to bed. So she had gotten wise to my lust-fueled sexual advances and used to shut me down. Most of the time, we'd go for weeks or months without any sex which drove me to act out late in the evenings. I'd just hop on the Internet after I thought she was asleep. I'd make a connection, masturbate, and return to bed, thinking nothing of the ritual. I wasn't bothering her, and she wasn't in the mood for sex. So I thought I would find it elsewhere. Well, in the morning she would invariably ask me why I was up so late, to which I would reply, I just couldn't sleep. I did some reading on the computer. What I came to learn much later on in marriage therapy in an office with a therapist some years later, was that when I was in my office looking for sex on the computer, she got out of bed and she would follow me down the hallway. 
And she could watch everything I was doing in my computer and the reflection of the light cast on pictures on the hall that were hanging in adjacent wall to the room I was in. And uh, I was unfaithful to her in my acting out. And she knew that everything that I told her was a flat-out lie. The end of my marriage. In the spring of and summer of 2007, my marriage was in a very deep, troublesome spot. We tried to see if we could salvage things. We tried other sex addiction programs my wife had chosen, since she had lost to open SA. That, once again, was my fault. These therapies were expensive, and we couldn't afford them. So I returned to the program. I got a new sponsor and worked diligently on my steps. On top of my essay meetings, I was seeing three therapists a week, a marriage therapist, an individual counselor, and a psychologist. My sponsor worked with me every opportunity that we could to get me through the steps. We labored through steps one through nine. I just so had to be on step nine because that's where I could say I was sorry. But my sponsor was diligent. There was nothing sliding past him. And we spent a good long time going over my steps. And I'm immensely thankful to him for that. I worked on the most important amends I needed to do first, my family. I wrote letters to my kids and my wife. I eagerly and contritely made amends to my children and my wife. In spite of my amends, my wife moved further and further away from me emotionally and otherwise. She would hang out with her work friends and developed a strong friendship with mutual male friend that we had at church. I slumped deeper and deeper into depression and my anger turned into rage. Imagine the dichotomy. After years of neglect of my wife, lying in unfaithfulness, I didn't have the stomach to digest the same treatment she had dished out to me. On October the 7th, 2007, two days before our 25th wedding anniversary, after a particularly difficult weekend, I exploded in a bout of anger with my wife that led to the police coming to the house and separating the two of us. She went to stay with friend's house, and I stayed at home. And that was the last time we spent together under one roof. Try as I might try to fix the marriage, 18 months later I was divorced. This was the most difficult time of my life. Because my children followed suit. Not only did my wife divorce me, but my kids divorced me too. This time I was really all by myself. Aside from some cordialities with my wife, my children wanted nothing to do with me for nearly 10 years. But I cured my loneliness with a girlfriend. The next one and a half years I spent alone. I was living with a friend from church who I sang with in a choir. He was divorced as well. He was actively looking for a new girlfriend, but I was too too depressed at first to do any of that. I did start to clean up my act a bit during this time. I remained sober for a while at least. I was in meetings and I took some sponsees. Then I met a gal at my church and I fell for her. Now mind you, this was probably about two years after the divorce. She was attractive, successful, and fun-loving. All the things that on the surface I thought were important. She was of my same faith tradition and active in the faith. After seeing her at church in the mornings, I asked her to go for some coffee. We saw each other at first as friends or on what she would call undates. When my divorce was finalized, however, things changed in the dating dynamic. I knew that I was not to have sex outside of the marriage, but I did anyway. There went all my resolve. I was really torn. I had no willpower around her. 
I used to pray to God to keep me from having sex on my way to see her for a date, and then have sex anyway. Well, I was a sex addict. What else did I know? I convinced myself that we were in love, and as such, an exception to the rule. The part was my whole problem all along. I always believed I was an exception to rules. I remember my ex-wife used to say to me over and over again, there are consequences to your actions. I was unable ever to square with this belief system that I held. Deep down, I knew better. I had great inner turmoil, and we could not remain chaste. The biggest problem I finally had to face with this relationship was that my behavior was compromising everything I told my girlfriend from the get-go, that I was a sex addict. Relatively early on as well, I told her that we could not have sex. Yet I put myself into situations that would put me into grave temptation for having sex with her. I'd tell her that I couldn't have sex with her, and then I would do just that. So the consequence of that was I lost all credibility with her. And the program I professed was so important to me. I lost the confidence of those I had offered to sponsor in the program. Maybe the most painful, I was rehashing the same deliberate, defiant behavior that I had took on with my wife. I didn't need to follow the rules. All this stress and some other caused us to break up in June of 2012, and I acted out for the last time shortly afterwards. So I was alone and with myself for the first time. I mean, really, alone and with myself. For the next nine months, I worked the program. I cut all ties with my girlfriend. I got sobriety back and started to work on my steps again. And for the first time in my life, I was just okay being by myself. I went to my meetings and eventually got enough sobriety to sponsor again. I recognized the inherent value from being of service inside and outside of the program. I discovered that I was able to not have sex and most times not feel the need. All these concepts that seemed so alien to me in the white book and in recovery continues, I could finally wrap my arms around. After nearly nine months, I decided to see if my girlfriend would be willing to date with the goal of getting married, under condition that we remain chaste for the duration. She agreed, and we started to date again. There were times of temptation, but I was on different footing now. It was very difficult to say no to a person who you have been intimate with, especially if they don't have the benefit of a program. She just took my no as rejection. A few days after a year after our last breakup, we were married. I was sober, and I continued to be sober. As a postscript to my talk tonight, although my current wife and I eventually went on to become married, that was only possible with a sober attitude and sticking with a program of recovery. Sober in and of itself is a wonderful gift from my higher power. But at the end of the day, I just get to be another member of the human race. You know, it's funny. I remember uh, this very Unity Conference maybe 10 years ago on the talent show. Somebody got up and they and they said a poem. The name of their poem was, My Sobriety Will Not Make the 11 O'Clock News. <laughs> so be it. I was able to go on vacation with my adult son and my daughter this last summer for the first time in 10 years. And it was wonderful. It's now been over four years of continuous sobriety for me. In the 23 that I have been in this program, I thank God for the gift of this program. I thank God for all those who have guided me through this program, including my current sponsor and those who have sponsored me in the past. 
and those whom I trudge the road of happy destiny with every single day. And for those of you who still struggle, or for you newcomers, after being in the program for a considerable amount of time, take it from me, the patron saint of slippies. Don't give up until the miracle happens. Thank you for letting me be a service. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.